Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's program, the Market Insights Notes on the Week Ahead. Hello, this is David Kelly. I'm Chief Strategist here at J.P. Morgan Funds. Today is July 29th, 2019. The week ahead, like last week, will be crammed with important market-moving events and data points. The challenge for investors will not be in predicting instant market reactions to this new information, but rather in understanding how it could change the investment landscape going forward. The first, most important change is a revised view of economic momentum provided by Friday's second quarter GDP report, which included revisions going back over the past five years. Simply put, an economic slowdown is no longer a forecast, it is a fact. Prior to Friday's release, the data showed year-over-year real GDP growth reaching a four-year high of 3.2% in the first quarter of this year. However, it now appears that growth actually attained this pace over a year ago and has been falling since, edging down to 2.3% year-over-year in the second quarter of this year. Moreover, looking forward, further deceleration appears on the cards. Inventories were still growing at roughly twice their normal pace in the second quarter, while government spending and some areas of consumer spending also appear to be rising at an unsustainable rate. This week's numbers on auto sales on Wednesday and jobs on Friday will likely support a narrative that growth now has permanently downshifted to roughly 2% following its post-tax cut surge. Still, barring some further shock, there are a few signs of a near-term recession. Second, the risk of a debt ceiling crisis or government shutdown has been averted, as Congress and the administration have agreed to a two-year deal that once again overrides the spending caps imposed by the Budget Control Act of 2011. Moreover, 2020 and 2021 were the last two years in which the caps were supposed to operate, so removing them altogether places forecasts of discretionary spending on a much higher, if, much, if more realistic, path. The Congressional Budget Office will likely use this new higher path in its forecasts, so that while the direct cost of this deal adds $324 billion to appropriations over the next two years, the new level of discretionary spending could add over $1.5 trillion to projections of the national debt by 2029. Finally, investors should understand that this agreement is not so much the addition of fiscal stimulus, but the removal of a fiscal cliff. Even with this agreement, total discretionary spending is budgeted to grow by 3.7% on average in 2020 and 2021, essentially in line with the growth in nominal GDP. Third, the week ahead will see Purchasing Manager Index released uh, data released worldwide. Based on last week's flash readings, the Global PMI Index for Manufacturing, due out on Thursday, will likely show a further deceleration activity to a fresh six-and-a-half-year low. However, it's important to note that this weakness is not as pronounced in the service sector, which may have improved in July. Outside of a general recession, swings in manufacturing tend to be rather short-lived, and while U.S. economic growth is setting in, settling into a new, slower pace, activity outside the United States should pick up later this year and into 2020. Fourth, on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve is widely expected to cut the federal funds rate for the first time since 2008. In justifying monetary easing, Chairman Jay Powell will likely emphasize that inflation continues to run below the Fed's 2% target. Tuesday's consumption deflation numbers for June should confirm this, with year-over-year numbers of 1.4% overall and 1.6%, excluding food and energy. However, given some stabilization in U.S. economic data in recent weeks, the strong performance of the stock market, and the removal of the risk of a budget crisis, 
he may well want to curb market expectations of multiple further rate cuts. While a slightly less dovish tone would be entirely appropriate, it may not be welcomed by US financial markets or the administration, both of which appear to demand ultra-easy monetary policy in all circumstances. Finally, the week ahead is the peak week in the earnings season, with 168 S&P 500 companies set to report. So far, with 54% of the S&P 500 market cap in the door as of Friday morning, 77% of firms have beaten earnings expectations compared to 69% and 74% over the past two quarters, respectively. However, in absolute terms, the year-over-year gain in earnings per share is tracking just 2% for the quarter, all of which can be accounted for by a reduction in share count due to strong buybacks. This buyback effect will likely fade in coming quarters, both due to the diminished impact of cash repatriated in response to the Tax Act of 2017 and because, at higher stock prices, it simply takes more dollars to reduce share count in a significant way. Beyond this issue, companies will likely struggle to boost earnings from today's high levels. Analysts' forecasts for 2020 are still pointing to double-digit gains in EPS, but these forecasts look very suspect in an environment of slowing economic growth and tight labour markets. For investors, this has been an exceptionally positive year so far, with large-cap US stocks gaining more than 20% even as interest rates drift down in anticipation of an easier Fed. However, these new brushstrokes paint a less optimistic picture than seems embedded in market action, with slower growth in the economy and earnings and less reason for aggressive Fed easing. Nevertheless, if the Fed does ease this week and once more before the end of the year, real cash yields, as measured by core CPI inflation, will once again descend into negative territory. For long-term investors, this still makes it difficult to justify hiding in cash. However, with a clearer big picture, it should be more important to take advantage of valuation opportunities, both within particular sectors of the US equity and fixed income markets and in lagging stock markets overseas. Well, that's it for this week. Please tune in again next week. And if you have any questions in the meantime, please reach out to your JP Morgan representative. This content has been produced for information purposes only. And as such, the views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or recommendation to buy or sell any investment or interest thereto. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the recipient. The material was prepared without regard to specific objectives, financial situation, or needs of any particular receiver. Any research in this asset has been obtained and may have been acted upon by J.P. Morgan Asset Management for its own purpose. The results of such research are being made available as additional information and do not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, statements of financial market trends, or investment techniques and strategies expressed are those of J.P. Morgan Asset Management unless otherwise stated as of the date of production. They are considered to be reliable at that time, but no warranty as to the accuracy and reliability or completeness in respect of any error or omission is accepted. They may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated. Copyright 2018. J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hello, this is David Kelly. I'm Chief Strategist here at J.P. Morgan Funds. Today is June 15th, 2020. In recent weeks, as stocks have rebounded strongly from their March lows, many have asked if the market has come too far too fast. Thursday's sharp sell-off may have been an expression of that concern. However, the answer to that question, like pretty much all questions of valuation, 
boils down to an assessment of expected return and risk. As we have argued before in recent months, there are good reasons for a positive view on expected return. First, the sectors of the economy that have been most badly affected by the pandemic are not the most important sectors to the stock market. Second, this should be a book-ended recession, starting with a virus and hopefully ending with a vaccine. If earnings can set new all-time highs in 2022, then given the long-term nature of the cash flows implicitly embedded into stock prices, equities should not be marked down too much to account for weaknesses this year and next. Finally, aggressive action by the Fed and other central banks have pushed interest rates to unattractively low levels, leaving investors with few alternatives to stocks. However, when it comes to risk, the current pricing of equities does suggest complacency. After all, stocks are supposed to hate uncertainty, and 2020 is yielding a bumper crop of it. While the greatest danger to markets usually lies in events no one predicted, there are plenty of plausible risks that are worth reviewing, including the following six possibilities. One, the pandemic sees a second wave. Two, a safe and effective vaccine isn't produced in a timely manner. Three, Congress fails to pass further coronavirus relief this summer. Four, a messy election produces a contested result. Five, taxes and interest rates rise in the aftermath of the election and pandemic. Or six, over-easy fiscal and monetary policy triggers a financial crisis within a few years. Page 26 of our Guide to the Markets illustrates both the natural infectiousness of COVID-19 and the success of social distancing. In just six weeks from early March to mid-April, the U.S. went from a handful of daily infections and no deaths to over 30,000 confirmed cases and more than 2,000 deaths per day. Since then, social distancing has not just flattened the curve, but reduced it, with the pandemic's toll easing to just over 20,000 daily cases and 800 daily deaths in the last week. However, as states partially reopen their economies, and as many skip elementary precautions such as wearing a mask when social distancing isn't possible, the decline in cases appears to be stalling. This suggests that the disease could reactivate in the months ahead, particularly when colder weather reduces outdoor activities and many schools and colleges reopen. If this happens, regardless of government regulations, many Americans will revert to hunkering down, squashing a tentative revival of the industries hardest hit by social distancing, such as travel, entertainment, restaurants and traditional retailing. A second risk is that current efforts to develop, manufacture and distribute a safe and effective vaccine fall short. There are, of course, many ways these efforts could fail. Despite multiple different efforts around the world, scientists may fail to produce a safe and effective vaccine. Or it could be that the vaccine provides limited immunity or immunity only for a short period of time. The government could also fail to develop an infrastructure to immunize the entire population, or a large percentage of the population may refuse to be vaccinated. Even in this scenario, normal life should resume in time. As a population wearies of social distancing, a certain herd immunity would develop over time anyway, although at a very heavy human cost. More hopefully, better drugs to treat the symptoms of the disease should become more widely available, reducing both deaths and the severity of infections. However, without a vaccine, full economic recovery would undoubtedly be delayed, with obviously negative implications for the financial well-being of individuals, companies and governments. A third concern, uh, risk, a third risk concerns the damage that could be done to the economy between now and the distribution of a vaccine, and this damage could easily be made worse by a political standoff. 
With serious negotiations on a new relief package delayed until the second half of July, Democrats and Republicans remain divided over issues of unemployment benefits, state and local government aid, incentives to help workers return to the job, and the vulnerability of companies to pandemic-related lawsuits. Well, these are all serious issues, with state and local governments already implementing cutbacks and enhanced unemployment benefits to set, set to expire at the end of July, a political standoff that extended into the fall could well result in a slower and more painful recovery. A further risk is the potential for chaos surrounding the November elections. Part of this, of course, springs from the very deep political divide in America in 2020. However, in addition, polling problems so far this year in a number of states have highlighted the additional difficulties caused by the pandemic, as millions of Americans will likely try to vote by absentee ballot. Unless one side or the other wins by a very decisive margin, this could easily degenerate into accusations of fraudulent or rigged elections. Even if this is resolved, any unrest or uncertainty caused by election chaos could further undermine an economic rebound. Finally, there's the matter of a fiscal and monetary reckoning after the election and once the pandemic finally subsides. Assuming that Congress passes a further $2 trillion in federal pandemic relief over the next 12 months, we estimate that the federal debt will swell to 114% of GDP by the end of the next fiscal year in September 2021. This would far exceed even the debt-to-GDP ratio after World War II. At the same time, as the Federal Reserve continues to buy treasuries at the current pace of roughly $80 billion per month, its total holdings of federal debt would exceed $5 trillion in a balance sheet that had swollen to over $8 trillion. How these issues are tackled may well depend on the outcome of the November election. In a democratic sweep, the new administration might feel pressure to reduce the federal deficit while simultaneously increasing spending on healthcare and infrastructure. This would likely mean higher taxes on wealthier individuals and corporations, both of which would negatively imp- impact real after-tax returns. In addition, under a new administration, the Federal Reserve could well take the opportunity to reassert its independence, and once the economy is on a stronger recovery path, it could taper its purchases of treasuries and begin to raise short-term rates, with potentially negative consequences for stocks. However, an alternative, longer-term risk to investors could result from a continuation of current, very easy fiscal and monetary policy. If following a Republican sweep, the administration and Congress refused to countenance tax increases while simultaneously pursuing higher infrastructure spending, federal debt would likely grow more quickly. If the president replaced the Fed chairman and other Fed governors with people he regarded as more loyal, monetary policy could remain more expansionary for longer. However, such a path could eventually result in a fiscal and monetary meltdown. As modern monetary theorists are fond of pointing out, a sovereign government with a captive central bank cannot be forced to default on its own bonds for the very simple reason that it is a ready buyer with unlimited powers to print money. However, while investors can be sure of being fully paid back in dollars, they could lose confidence in the dollar itself, and higher inflation along with dollar devaluation could be the result. Such an inflation could only be ended by very painful fiscal and monetary actions to restore trust in the value of the currency. A lesson learned in the US in the 1970s and 1980s, and in many emerging market countries since then, is that once you have forfeited trust in a currency, you have to run a much tighter monetary and fiscal ship to regain it. It is, of course, possible that the US will avoid all of these dangers. However, investors should bear them in mind when considering strategy today. Many may be relieved that the stock market is holding up so well in this otherwise dismal year. However, investors should be clear-eyed about these risks suggesting a somewhat more diversified and defensive stance until events can hopefully dispense with at least some of these more negative outcomes. 
Well, that's it for this week. Please tune in again next week. And if you have any questions in the meantime, please reach out to your J.P. Morgan representative. This content has been produced for information purposes only. And as such, the views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or recommendation to buy or sell any investment or interest thereto. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the recipient. The material was prepared without regard to specific objectives, financial situation, or needs of any particular receiver. Any research in this asset has been obtained and may have been acted upon by J.P. Morgan Asset Management for its own purpose. The results of such research are being made available as additional information and do not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, statements of financial market trends, or investment techniques and strategies expressed are those of J.P. Morgan Asset Management, unless otherwise stated, as of the date of production. They are considered to be reliable at that time, but no warranty as to the accuracy and reliability or completeness in respect of any error or omission is accepted. They may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated. Copyright 2018. J.P. Morgan Chase & Company.